Listener supported. WNYC Studios. I'm Kai Wright, host of WNYC's podcast, The United States of Anxiety. This season, we're focusing on gender and power, themes that are upending the 2018 elections. On the Politics Brief podcast from WNYC, you get the best of our political coverage with segments from my show, as well as from The Takeaway, The Brian Lehrer Show, and On the Media. Plus, local reporting on New York and New Jersey races from our award-winning newsroom. Welcome to Politics Brief from WNYC. This is The Takeaway. I'm Tanzina Vega. And midterm elections are just days away. And in ads to voters, Republicans and Democrats alike are focusing on issues like health care, taxes, jobs, and immigration. But one thing that's not getting a lot of attention, climate change. Less than half of 1% of campaign ads explicitly mention climate change. That, despite recent warnings from the United Nations and others that predict catastrophic damage as early as 2040. Our next guests take those warnings seriously and say that these issues need to be talked about more, regardless of where you stand on the political spectrum. My name is Kyle Myerd-Skopp. I'm 29 years old. I'm the national organizer and spokesperson for Young Evangelicals for Climate Action, moderate, independent, and climate change is a top issue for me. Hi, my name is Danielle Butcher. I am 22 years old, and I work as the COO of the American Conservation Coalition. I am a conservative, and climate is a top three issue for me. My name is Anaji Artis, 18 years old, the co-founder of a youth-led climate justice organization called Zero Hour. Climate is definitely my number one issue, and I am a liberal. Kyle, Danielle, and Zanaji are millennials. The only generation in which a clear majority believe that there's solid evidence of climate change and who also say humans are the primary cause. And within the Republican Party specifically, there's a growing gap between millennials and older Republicans on the impact of climate change and whether the government is doing enough to address it. We start with Kyle of Young Evangelicals for Climate Action. I grew up in a conservative Christian home uh, that taught me many, many great things, uh, how to love the world, how to love people, how to love Jesus, but not how to care about climate change. Uh, It just wasn't on the radar. And then a a series of events in my life, including uh, my older brother, who I respect deeply, kind of having his own conversion on the issue, contributed to me beginning to understand the connections between my faith and the issue of a changing climate. And so for me, as I think about climate change, I can't think of it as separated from uh, my commitment to the gospel, to love God and to love people. And when I look out at the impacts of a changing climate, I see that it's harming God's creation and that it's harming my neighbors. So for me, acting on climate change is a moral issue and it's a way for me to deepen calling as a Christian uh, to follow Jesus by loving God and loving people. Zanaji, I'd like to get your thoughts on that. Why is climate change something that's important to you? Yeah. So for me, I was definitely like very into sustainability and thinking about conservation of like wildlife sanctuaries and animal life for a really long time. But it wasn't until starting my work with Zero Hour that I was really focusing on climate justice. And for me, I think it's very important to see that like climate change is a very human issue and that we need to provide justice for the people who are being adversely impacted by the fossil fuel industry. And so that's something that I've been working to do. And that's why I really want to be involved with climate justice organizing. And Danielle, what about you? Why is climate change a key issue for you? 
Sure. So opposite of Kyle, I was actually raised in a very progressive home. My father works in the solar industry, and so ideals such as protecting the earth were ingrained in me from a very young age. And when I was given the opportunity to work on environmental issues, I jumped at it because it's just something that I've always been very passionate about. So I want to get a little more specific here. So Danielle, you said you were raised in a progressive home, but now you're uh, conservative, you're Republican. How do you feel about the way the GOP has dealt with climate change? And do you see there being some sort of generational divide between older Republicans and younger Republicans on this issue? So I think that historically, the GOP has done a pretty good job of taking care of the environment generally. I believe that once climate change or global warming came into the discussion, they sort of shied away from environmental issues. Um, And I would say the last decade hasn't been as stellar as it could be. There's definitely a lot of room for improvement. I will say that in my work on Capitol Hill, speaking with legislators, a lot of them are very willing to find compromises and to act on climate. And why do you think that there is so much, you said this sort of thing, they've shied away from it, but what do you think, has it become too politicized in the party right now for us to actually see some change? Uh, Right now, I don't think so. I believe in the early 2000s, you saw a lot of polarization around the issue, especially as the rhetoric tended to be towards Al Gore's, like the entire earth will be flooded by 2020. Um, People don't really respond well to those types of scare tactics and that type of rhetoric. And so as that really became the main narrative, people walked away from the issue. And I think that if we can, you know, kind of calm that down and find some common ground on the issue between both parties, it can definitely be something where bipartisan and work is accomplished. Zanaji, I want to bring you in here also. What do you think the Democrats um, have done? And do you think they're doing enough? I mean, I feel like, you know, there's less than 1% of the campaign ads, just so you all know, um, that are going out before the midterms are talking about climate change. So on either side of the political divide, there doesn't seem to be a lot of messaging. So do you think the Democrats are doing enough? And if so, why haven't they made this a bigger issue? Yeah, I think definitely... um, the Democrats are doing a lot of work for the environment, but I mean, there's a lot more that can be done. Definitely the Obama administration with putting uh, regulations on vehicles and like stopping the addition of more fossil fuel infrastructure with pipelines was good, but a lot of pipelines did get expanded in the U.S. during his administration. And definitely one thing that has a lot of people that I've talked to who are my age very angry about from the Democratic Party is that the Democratic National Committee went back on a resolution that they passed saying that the DNC would not take any donations from the fossil fuel industry. I think right now a lot of elected officials and candidates running for office aren't really focusing on the environment as something that's one of their key points for their campaign because it's not really an issue that's this flashy thing that people can point at and say, oh, like as an elected official, I like stopped this thing. It's more of an issue of prevention rather than reaction, which is, I think, something that we see a lot more in politics. Kyle, I want to ask you as well. Um, you mentioned this a little bit in in your first answer, but do you see the evangelical community um, having a sort of generation gap when it comes to how they approach climate change? Absolutely. Uh, What we find when we travel around to evangelical Christian college campuses, when we're talking in churches, is particularly among our generation. Uh, A few years ago, we had to begin conversations way at the beginning 
and, and now we're able to kind of jump right in. So I think we're, we're definitely seeing a, a gap, generationally speaking. You know, we're, we're the first generation, uh, millennials in particular, we're the first generation uh, who are really going to have to live with the consequences of a changing climate. You know, the most recent Intergovernmental Panel uh, on Climate Change report said as soon as 2040, we're going to be seeing some of the catastrophic impacts of climate change. Uh, I'm going to be in my mid-40s by then. You know, I, I'm going to have hopefully half of my life left. So it's it's a different issue for our generation because it's our future we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And so um, I want to get a sense from Danielle. There's a lawsuit right now that's being brought by 21 plaintiffs. They're ages 11 to 22. And they're demanding that the government fight climate change. Um, They're basically making the argument similar to what you just did, Kyle, that, um, you know, in many ways, this is going to affect their future, but it also deprives them of their constitutional rights. I'm wondering if you think that this is an effective way to go about, you know, making the change that we're all talking about today. I think it's certainly a good way to open a dialogue on the subject. As far as enacting actual substantive change goes, I'm not sure it will accomplish too much. I think a more productive approach would be to find legislation that you support and lobby as a constituent on behalf of it. Um, As I mentioned earlier, I think that legislators are very willing to work on these issues. Um, Something that we're told very often is that they just don't hear from their constituents about it. And if the people who are voting them into office aren't, you know, saying that this is a priority for them, then lawmakers aren't going to prioritize these issues. So we need to be more vocal as constituents. So let's talk about that because we've got three fantastic folks here at this metaphorical table, if you will. And I'd love to hear what each of you thinks could be a potential fix. Kyle, let's start with you. So uh, Young Evangelicals for Climate Action, uh, for a long time, kind of our um, policy position was simply, look, Young Evangelicals want uh, lawmakers to find solutions to this. Uh, and for a while, that was enough. And and recently, the conversation nationally has been moving far enough where, where we need to start drilling down and, and supporting specific policies. Top of them is uh, a revenue-neutral non-regressive carbon tax. So it would be uh, a steadily rising fee on carbon dioxide to send a strong signal to the market uh, that um, we're finally going to start accounting for the true costs of digging up and burning fossil fuels. Uh, and, And this would be revenue neutral, so it wouldn't grow the government in any way, meaning it would either offset existing taxes, perhaps lowering income taxes, or, or, or another tax, or uh, it could be the revenues could be distributed to households as a dividend check. Uh, however, at the same time, a, a carbon tax won't account for other really harmful uh, toxins and greenhouse gases. Uh, so we need targeted regulations as well, at the same time as we have a strong, broad, bipartisan tax on carbon. Danielle, your thoughts? Uh, I would agree with Kyle that our solutions need to not grow the government. Uh, And so where I would disagree with Kyle is when it comes to carbon taxes. I will say some solutions absolutely include lowering emissions and offsetting carbon. For example, in 2014, Delta Airlines voluntarily offset uh, 995, 37,000 tons of carbon um, through reforestation. And I think that incentivizing companies to do things like that will help immensely. And Zanaji, your thoughts, How? what are your solutions here? 
Yeah. So just going on like the point of the tax, zero hour actually doesn't support any form of carbon tax because a big corporation could get by that easily because of how much money they're already making. But in addition to that, we think that one major thing that can be done is expanding public transport. I personally don't think that everyone needs to own a car. But right now, I mean, that is the reality because we have a lack of options with public transportation. I have to say, just between the three perspectives we have at this roundtable, I'm feeling very motivated. Um, I'm wondering, is your generation going to be the one that finally gets this right? I believe we will be. I think our generation is very motivated on environmental issues, and I think that climate is a very pressing environmental issue. So I definitely think that we're the generation that will take action on it. I agree. And I one of the things I'm most inspired by is the fact that, you know, we have a conservative, a liberal and a moderate here uh, having a civil conversation, uh, recognizing common ground and recognizing the common work that we all have to do together. We're sick and tired of it and our futures are on the line. We're all in this together and we all have to find solutions that we can live with. And I think that's what we're doing as a generation. And Zanaji, your uh, thoughts? I think, yeah, definitely if like young people actually like start getting involved and these organizations that are working on climate actually really try to connect with young people and show them that this is an issue that should really be looked at, then we can definitely accomplish something. Zanaji Artis is a freshman at Brown University and the co-founder of Zero Hour. Kyle Meyard-Skop is a national organizer and spokesperson for Young Evangelicals for Climate Action. And Danielle Butcher is the chief operating officer of the American Conservation Coalition. Thanks to you all for joining us. Thank Thank you. you. Thanks for having us. All 435 seats in the House of Representatives are on midterm ballots next Tuesday. And if the Democrats want to become the majority party, they need to win 24 Republican-held seats and lose none of their own. But as we prepare for Election Day, one question to ask is, who do our elected officials in the House actually represent? Back in 1910, there was one representative for every 200,000 people. And today, it's one representative for more than 700,000 people. There are currently 435 seats, uh, and we have had the same number of seats since the early 1900s. That's Drew DeSilver, a senior writer at the Pew Research Center. And we sat down to discuss what some problems may be with the system that hasn't changed in nearly 90 years. We started our conversation by discussing why we settled on 435 representatives in the first place. There was a long period in which the Congress added seats every time uh, they added new states to the Union or as population grew, but for various political reasons, uh, largely involving conflicts between rural areas and urban areas. Uh, The number of seats was capped in uh, 1911, and there's been uh, only one temporary increase ever since. And the result of that has been that as the population continues to increase, uh, each representative represents more and more and more people. Currently now it's over 700,000 people per representative. That seems a little ridiculous that we haven't updated this since 1929. It's 2018. Can you tell me about why we haven't updated this? Let's go back Go back for a sec to the 1920 census, uh, because typically you're supposed to reapportion all the seats after every census. And in 19, after the 1920 census, uh, that showed a, a, a large continuing shift of population from rural areas to urban areas. 
And the Congress back then was dominated largely by rural uh, representatives from rural areas who did not want to see the power of their areas decline. So they basically did not reapportion the, the, the seats at all in the 1920s. Uh, they just kind of skipped that census. And in, by the time the 1930 census was looming in the, on the horizon, they set this permanent law to uh, cap the seats at 435. Now, the effect of that uh, tends to be that the seats get larger and larger, but each state still is guaranteed one representative, no matter how small it is. So that over time, that has tended to distort the the allocation of representatives per, by state. It's it's roughly proportional, but it's not exactly proportional. So I guess the question is, does the makeup or how does the makeup of the House change when a population grows or shrinks in a certain state? Uh, well, there's a very complicated formula that has been used since 1940 to, to uh, allocate seats, but the effect of it is that relatively small differences in population between states can result in a state either gaining or losing a seat. Rhode Island has only about 9,000 more people than Montana, but that is just barely enough to give Rhode Island two representatives and Montana still has only one. Uh, so that one uh, representative in Montana, he, he's the guy for over a million Montanans. And whereas Rhode Island, uh, each of their representatives has about 500-odd thousand constituents. Uh, so you have these kind of disparities every time there's a break in the population number between where you'd get one more and one less representative. And sometimes it seems a little bit random depending on which, you know, which state happens to fall on either side of that line. What are some of the flaws in the model currently? I mean, it doesn't seem like we are a representative of uh, the population. Some of the argument has been, well, if you have a smaller house, it's 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 uh, more manageable. It's uh, it can be kind of chaotic if you have too many people. But you look at other uh, advanced democracies around the world, and they seem to get along with larger legislatures. The the House of Commons in in the UK has 650 members of parliament. The uh, the Bundestag in Germany has a little over 700 uh, members, and each of those have much lower populations than the U.S. does. It's harder. It's harder for representatives as the districts get larger and larger. It's harder for them to, for one person to represent all these people because people are are varied and they have uh, they have their own different interests and different uh, expectations. And the more of them you have, the harder it is to get someone who represents you know, most of them. So we've got a pretty contentious census coming up uh, in 2020. And depending on how that goes, um, it can either, you know, it's expected that as we could see as many as 16 states gain or lose congressional seats. And I guess my question to you is, where do they come from? That's one of the problems you have when you have, or one of the issues, I should say, when you have a fixed number of seats, no one can gain unless somebody else loses. And for the past several decades, you've seen an ongoing shift of of uh, relative population and hence the shift of congressional seats away from the Northeast and the Midwest toward the South and the West because that's where most of the population has been growing. I guess the question I have is, do you see this being updated? I mean, we haven't updated this since 1929. In the future, is there any possibility to uh, to sort of update this so that it does is more reflective of our current uh, population density. There have been, been a couple of, of efforts to do that in Congress. There have been a few sporadic efforts over the years, but there does not seem to be a whole lot of 
concern about this. So I would not, uh, I mean, I can't predict the future any more than anyone else can, but uh, it would not seem that this would be likely to change anytime soon. Drew DeSilver is a senior writer at the Pew Research Center. Drew, thanks again for joining us. My pleasure. You're listening to the Politics Brief Podcast. We'll be right back after... Carnegie Hall has welcomed a dizzying array of performers. To have Andy Kaufman, Frank Zappa, and Birkett Nielsen and Horowitz on the same stage, it becomes this kaleidoscope of our history. I'm Jessica Vosk. Join me for the new podcast, If This Hall Could Talk. It's all about our unique cultural history, as witnessed by one of New York's most beloved institutions, Carnegie Hall. Listen now, wherever you get podcasts. Break. Last week, we asked you for ballot measures you were watching in your state. My name is Zach. I'm from St. Louis, Missouri. Right now, the thing I'm most concerned about going into the midterm elections is in Missouri, we have three different medical marijuana initiatives on the ballot, and they are all conflicting. Missouri is on track to become the 32nd state in the country to legalize medical marijuana. But like our listener Zach said, there are three different ballot questions on the topic, Amendment 2, Amendment 3, and Proposition C. If voters pass any of these measures, Missouri would join a growing number of red states with legal medical marijuana. Jason Rosenbaum is a political reporter for St. Louis Public Radio, and he's here to help us untangle it all. The short answer is there are initiatives on the ballot because the Missouri General Assembly did not pass a program legalizing medical marijuana. There was an effort this year and a lot of Republicans supported it, but it got bogged down in the Senate. The three initiatives are different, but by and large, they would allow doctors to prescribe marijuana for medicinal use for certain ailments. Since two are constitutional amendments and one is a statute, that the two constitutional amendments are the things that people are looking at right now. And we did get a call from a listener in Missouri who said they were confused by the three initiatives. Is there a really simple way to sort of explain the main differences between each of them? Yes. Amendment 2 would basically have the proceeds go to veterans programs and would have the State Department of Health oversee a lot of the implementation of the program. Amendment 3, which is funded by an attorney doctor out of Springfield, Missouri, named Brad Bradshaw, would have a much higher tax and the proceeds would go to a medical research institute trying to find cures for cancer. Proposition C is fairly similar to Amendment 2. And in many respects, it might have been proposed in case Amendment 2 didn't make the ballot. It has a lower tax of 2 percent. And it does give local governments a little bit more leeway about whether they want to have like dispensaries in their particular jurisdictions. Hmm. And are voters encouraged by these amendments? Are they excited about them? Are they sort of indifferent? Do you expect they'll pass? I think there is a very good chance that they will pass, mainly because Republicans have become much more amenable to medical marijuana, not only Republican legislators, but most likely Republican voters. Missouri has become a more Republican state over the past 20 years. And if you have a situation where a ballot initiative can pass in rural, suburban and urban areas, then it's almost a certainty that it's going to be successful. And you actually spoke about these measures with the Speaker of Missouri's House of Representatives, Republican Todd Richardson. I 
will say that there has been a dramatic change in the conversation surrounding this issue, even in the seven years that I've been in the legislature. If you told me when I'd walked in the door that you'd have as many conservative Republicans supporting some type of, of legalization of marijuana, I wouldn't have believed you. I'm wondering, what do you think is leading that? I think it's probably public pressure. There have been legislators who I've talked to who have said that their constituents have become overwhelmingly in favor of medical marijuana. And sometimes legislators go with what their constituents want. And another thing that I should also mention, too, is Missouri has a large population of veterans. Veterans, especially of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, have suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder. And I think that there are more and more who are finding relief from that affliction through medical marijuana. I would think that especially if if veteran constituents are telling their legislators about that, it can be pretty powerful to Republican politicians. So I'm curious, if Missouri legalizes medical marijuana, how will that impact the surrounding states? Not as much as you would think. Illinois already legalized medical marijuana some time ago. And Oklahoma, I'm pretty sure, voted to legalize medical marijuana this summer. So if this was 2010 and Missouri was taking this step, I think it would be more significant. But considering that there already are fairly conservative states that have already legalized medical marijuana, I'm not really sure it'll be as groundbreaking as people think. And I think that really the the focus will just be on how the program will actually be implemented. Jason Rosenbaum is a political reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Thanks for being with us, Jason. Thank you so much for having me. We turn now to recreational marijuana, which is legal in nine states and on the ballot in two other states this election. It's a far cry from 2007 when no states had legal recreational weed and almost 800,000 people had been arrested for marijuana possession. Black people were nearly four times more likely to be arrested than whites for the same crime, even though the two groups used marijuana at similar rates. My brother was caught up in that. At 19, he was arrested uh, for four and a half ounces of cannabis, and he ended up with a 10-year prison sentence. And of those 10 years... Four of those years were spent picking cotton. Wanda James is the first black woman to own a cannabis dispensary in the United States. And for Wanda, her identity and her work are inextricably linked. We didn't grow up together. My brother grew up, you know, poor in in Dallas, Texas. And to find out that my brother had received a felony for cannabis was shocking to me. To find out that my brother picked 100 pounds of cotton a day for four years disgusted me to the point of, we have to talk about this. We have to change this. And the only way to change a system sometimes is work it from the inside. Wanda and her husband own the Simply Pure dispensary in Denver, Colorado, making her part of the 17% of marijuana industry executives who happen to be people of color. She also advocates for more representation in an industry that has a long way to go. There is lots of lip service about black and brown people joining the industry. However, let's talk about Colorado for a second. Back in 2009, (laughs) if you were a nonviolent drug offender, you could not own a cannabis business unless you were 10 years or 15 years, I believe at that time, removed from your felony conviction. Now, if you were an embezzler or a rapist, yeah, welcome. (laughs) You could come in. If you were 
it rested for that nonviolent drug offense, we're basically arresting the visionaries. And I like to liken it. Can you imagine if Bill Gates was not able to participate in the internet boom because he started creating, you know, computers in his garage in 1979? Because the people that we cut out of this industry were literally the people that had the know-how how to grow this industry. And they were not allowed in Colorado to be owners. They weren't even allowed in Colorado to be employees if it had been less than five years from their conviction. Now, fast forward, everybody is talking about, you know, social justice and how do we get these people involved? How do we, you know, bring on the micro licenses? And all of that is really great, right? Except for now, you need millions upon millions upon millions upon millions of dollars to be able to get into this industry. 17% of executives in the cannabis industry are people of color. You're okay. one of them. Yep. What does that feel like? <laughs> Lonely. <laughs> uh, it, you know, it, it's interesting how many times I'm in the room and it's 90% white guys, you know, 10% white women and me. And I'll be really honest with you. It's growing tiresome. And it's growing very tiresome when I look at the other side as we started this conversation. When I sit in a room of people who are trying to get their records ex expunged, it's 90% black people <laughs> and me. I mean, it's, it's amazing that this is what we're seeing. So how do we change that? A, we have to get involved as much as possible. Bloom where you're planted. Get your foot in the door any way that you can because it's easier to change the system from inside than it is outside. Um, those of us that are fortunate enough to get licenses, we have to reach back. We've got to be able to bring in people of color to be able to start to train them on either the entry level or bringing them in on the management level so that we can show them, you know, what it is so that they can start making contacts and hopefully find the people that can help them fund businesses as we move forward. And most importantly, we've got to back down law enforcement um, from the intimidation factor that they have put into communities of color because we don't trust that we're not going to go to jail. I still get phone calls from family members that think I'm going to go to jail they're nervous about it because how many black and brown families have heard before, yes, you're fine, it's legal, but yet you still get demonized for it. Um, Are I, you concerned? Not even a little bit. Not even a little bit. And I look at it this way. For me personally, I like to hide in plain sight, I guess. I'm not hiding, but I mean, I feel like the more that we talk about it and the more vocal I am about it, the less likely I am to be a... <laughs> a target of, of law enforcement or people that want to make a, an example out of somebody. And, and do you really see us being able to reach parity at any point, meaning people of color being able to reach and really get a piece of this industry as it takes off? Or have we already gotten so past that that we're never going to be able to catch up? Uh, it, you know, this train has left the station so many years ago, but I'm not a fatalist, and I believe that we can catch up. But, you know, the money is so big right now. You know, we're putting in an application in New Jersey, and we're working with Al Harrington, who owns uh, Viola Extracts in Colorado, former NBA ball player. Should we win this license, we're going to have to raise $30 million, 20 to $30 million to be able to open up this facility. That's a tremendous lift. So... And does that money come from private equity? Does that money come from Silicon Valley? Like... Where do you even begin? <laughs> Where do you find thirty million? Thirty million bucks—that's a lot of money. I mean, that's a ridiculous amount of money. There are people money, right? who are right, and so and 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 I ask that because mm 
people of color mm-hmm. traditionally have a more difficult path at accessing yeah. those those funds. Well, you know, and that's the crazy part. So where does that money come from? Yes, all all the above. And that's the other crazy part. Who's investing in cannabis right now? Hedge funds, <laughs> countries, Canada. I, I mean, it's and so if you're not running in those circles, how do you find those people? You know, I talk to a lot of people in my family, and a lot of my friends of color, they don't even know a lawyer. In their circle. So, mm-hmm. I mean, on top of the $30 million raise, I mean, you need a cannabis attorney, you need a criminal attorney, you need a business attorney. I mean, people that are talking to you about investing with Series A, and you, I mean, it's overwhelming what it is that you need to know about this. So, once again, I don't want to be a fatalist because, yes, I believe that we can, but the big message for everybody is no one person does this. It is a team of people behind every cannabis business out there. You have a team. You have to find someone that knows finance. I don't even talk that language that, you know, finance people speak. You have to find somebody that, you know, knows cultivation, that knows how to market, that knows HR, that knows medical, you know, services. Pull together your team, which once again, it's important to get your foot in the door to be able to meet those people, to be able to start your team. Wanda James is the first black woman to own a licensed cannabis dispensary in the United States. Wanda, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me today. This is a good conversation, and it's one that we need to have a lot more often. When Queen frontman Freddie Mercury died in 1991 at the age of 45, he was memorialized as a musical legend. Mercury was the man behind a long list of iconic stadium anthems, including We Will Rock You, We Are the Champions, and of course, Bohemian Rhapsody. Fans around the world knew and loved his music, but what many of them weren't familiar with was his personal life. Mercury died due to complications from AIDS, and though he never came out while he was alive, the singer's relationships with men are now well documented. Tomorrow, a new film about Mercury's life called Bohemian Rhapsody opens in theaters. And while the film doesn't erase Mercury's sexuality, its approach to his personal life is still being questioned by the LGBTQ community. Joining me now in the studio to discuss the film is Rafer Guzman, film critic for Newsday and The Takeaway. Hi, Rafer. Hi, Tanzina. And Pierre Dominguez, culture writer for BuzzFeed News. Hi, Pierre. Hi. Thanks for being here. I'm so excited for this. I want to start with you, Pierre. We talked in, in the introduction about Freddie Mercury's sort of position as a queer icon today. How would you describe that? I think what's been so interesting about the conversation around the film is that everyone has their own Freddie Mercury, whether it's rock bros or suburban moms or everyone has their own Freddie Mercury. And I think this contestation over what he means and to whom is is what's so interesting is that there is no single Freddie Mercury. But the question of how his queerness should be approached and represented in this mainstream film you know, as its own problem. Because initially, when the trailer first came out, there were concerns that it sort of was very benign. They had, it wasn't clear whether or not he was queer. And do you think that they've done a better job at that, at making that clearer, or does it not matter? I think that the, what the problem for, first was was that the trailer only showed his relationship with, with a girlfriend, with an early girlfriend that was true in, in his life. Um, and it kind of de-emphasized his queerness and his relationships with men. And I think that that also happens in the film. Rafer, your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think I think one problem with this movie is that, like Pierre is saying, everybody has their own Freddie Mercury, but also I feel like Freddie Mercury 
really is kind of resisting this movie sort of from the grave. I feel like you can almost feel him in this movie saying, I wasn't really an out gay icon and I'm not going to be that. Um, you know, mm. I was not an AIDS activist. You know, he kept his diagnosis secret for many years, literally until the last possible moment. He died the very next day right after he announced it. So you can kind of see him saying, and I think he actually says in the film, I'm not going to be the AIDS poster boy. It's the one line in the film that I thought actually kind of had the ring of truth. He was a son of immigrants, but he's not going to be the immigrant success story. He doesn't want to be any of those things. And I feel like that's a real problem for a Hollywood movie that needs an angle. It needs a spin. It needs a focus and a story and a narrative arc that's very clean and a nice through line. And Freddie Mercury, you know, uh, was not straightforward in that sense. And he doesn't he doesn't want to be that guy, I feel. Interesting. And in October, the actor who plays Freddie Mercury, Rami Malek, was asked by Gay Star News about Mercury's sexuality. And I want to play a clip of his answer. You know, he never wanted to be categorized or labeled. He just was. And whatever he was should have been okay. And I think that's the way he sees it. If you're out there and you want to be exactly who you want to be, then uh, I think for you, Freddie Mercury might be a, a hero. Kind of to your point, Rafer, but Pierre, what do you think about um, that statement? Well, I mean, I think it's very convenient for straight actors and straight filmmakers to sort of take like the idea that somebody's a universal icon and then sort of pretend like telling a story from a queer perspective is somehow reductive or provincial. But the fact of the matter is Freddie Mercury wasn't quite in. There's a, a critic once called this the notion of queer opacity where you're both kind of inside and outside. You're playing with signifiers. And somebody who dresses up as a gay clone was not somebody who was trying to be in. So the idea that like... The film says like, yeah, oh, I don't want to be an AIDS poster, but they make him say that in the film. And it kind of is interesting because it's that arch kind of um, campy perspective that he had. But yet they also sentimentalized the AIDS diagnosis in a way that really kind of there's a lot of films that do this where it's like AIDS is sort of seen as like, oh, gay men were being promiscuous and they were doing drugs. And that's why it happened. And it's such a tragedy. AIDS wasn't a tragedy because gay men were doing drugs. It was a tragedy of government inaction over a public health crisis. And you don't have to sort of erase a struggle over AIDS um, or a diagnosis or what it means and then sort of make him this angel. There's like a light comes on him, like this white light, like he's now redeemed and he can go on to that final concert. Like, So this question of like in or out and what his relationship to his identity as an immigrant, as a queer person was, is very complicated. And to sort of say, oh, he was universal and thus we don't have to touch on that. That's a little convenient. Uh, it's convenient and to Rafer's point, it sort of creates a narrative that works for the film and not necessarily Necessarily for his story, right, Rafer? Yeah, and 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 you know, would it have been interesting? I think uh, to have a conversation in that film, a conversation that I'm going to assume must have happened between someone saying to Freddie Mercury, "There's a health crisis going on," just as you're saying, Pierre. This, if you come out about your diagnosis, about your sexuality, that could be a really helpful thing. And you know, to hear Freddie Mercury's side of that, perhaps would have been an interesting back and forth and would have you know given you some idea of of the tension that was in Freddie Mercury's life you know am am I out am I in you know am I how open am I about what's going on here um and why does he stuff. have to be like I think that that's the frustration right why does he have to be a figure that is all of the things that is you know the immigrant the the person who suffered through a very difficult illness the person who's out and queer like why can't he just be a musician? Because the film, if the film had been called We Will Rock You, the story of Queen, 
That's one thing. I and mean, we're kind of a jukebox musical, which is ultimately what it kind of is. That would be one thing. But you can't use a queer man's life and sort of try to sell the film through the myth of this sort of queer man and then not sort of go there about all these different things. And in fact, portray his queerness as this kind of source of darkness rather than sort of artistic creation and self-making. So I think that we have to think about whose perspective is being told here. Like Steven Soderbergh did this surprisingly interesting film about Liberace that was based on his gay male lover's memoir. And he said, you know what? I couldn't make this film in Hollywood. I had to take it to HBO mm. because Hollywood is still so homophobic. They wouldn't go there. Rafer, you're nodding there about yeah. the Liberace film. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, just the, just the again, the, the idea that, um, you know, that people are still uh, kind of squeamish about this stuff. Uh, you know, it's it's really true. I mean, so it, I think we focus a lot about on how many strides have been made, and 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 it's good to acknowledge that. Um, but it's true that people are still, um, you know, there's they only want to go so far. I think in some cases, and again, um, in the filmmaker's defense, somewhat, Freddie Mercury would only let them in so far. He, you know, he only said so much, and he was only going to let the public in so much. Well, and, I don't know about the public. He let in his straight bandmates in so much, mm. and this film was their perspective. It was his that's story yeah. told through his straight bandmates' eyes, mm-hmm. and who were that, also consultants on the film. I yeah, understand. Yeah, and it was produced mm-hmm. by their ex-manager. So that's it's right. like to me, it's like whose story is this? Is it is it his story or is it his bandmate's story about what they thought he meant? You know, so again, that's where the question of whose perspective mm-hmm. becomes important. To your point about the band members, there was also another element to this, and that's Brian Singer, who is the bisexual. He's considered one of the most successful LGBT directors in Hollywood, and at the same time, has been accused of sexual assault by multiple men. I'd love to hear both of your reactions to his involvement in the film and whether or not you know that was a positive, a negative, has impacted it in any way. It's it's a little tough to say um, because, you know, Fox has kept a lot of that pretty secret. You know, he was supposedly replaced by Dexter Fletcher pretty late in the production and was given sole directing credit. And Dexter Fletcher has said, you know, I don't need that. It wasn't enough work for me to have a second a second credit. And so it goes to Brian Singer. You know, I the allegations are as as ugly as any of the ones that we've heard from any of the other men in Hollywood. For some interesting reason, it hasn't seem to really sink Brian Singer the way that it has for other people. Um, you know, he's still working. He still seems to be fairly popular uh, as a director. Whatever happened with this movie, you can see it on screen. The movie does not generally work. And I think the directing problems have, have to have contributed to that. Pierre, your thoughts on, um, on Singer? I just think it's kind of interesting. Like you said, he's always called himself, I think, bisexual. Or I think he called himself very bisexual in an interview. So I, I think it just kind of speaks to tokenism of the of the idea that, like, well, he's in some way maybe gay or queer, or, and let's have him do this film. But so I don't he's see okay anything. To do it, right, like, right. Yeah. But I don't see anything in his like past work that would suggest that he would be a good pick for a Freddie Mercury film. What about the focus on HIV and AIDS in this film? I wonder. I, I some I grew up in the era where that was a thing, right? Where we were witnessing firsthand. Um, the impact of AIDS and HIV in this country. And I think, have we gotten to a place where we don't culturally quite remember the devastation of this disease, that we don't remember when people had the disease, when when AIDS was first in the, the national conversation, 
it was shame. People felt shame when they came. It was something that people hid. It was something that was so deeply painful um, that you would know people would pass away and you wouldn't quite know what happened, right? Uh, I wonder how much that influenced this film also and maybe uh, Freddie Mercury's decision himself not to be so public about what it was because of the shame, because of that moment. I, I think that there's a very problematic sort of equation of androgyny and flamboyance and sort of glam rockness with the idea of like the specificity of queer identity or gay identity. And I think that, for example, for Freddie Mercury, I'm sure, I mean, I, I don't know, but I, I, I wonder how it felt like for him to go from that kind of kind of general androgyny, general flamboyance to, for example, as the bandmate says in the film, presenting like one of the village people. Where yeah. he was doing this sort of macho clone look that was from a gay subculture. So in this kind of like, everyone's queer, Lady Gaga's queer. We don't think about the way that straight performers like Lady Gaga, for example, are in many ways using a queer subcultural capital to sell themselves. And I think that this, the di there's a difference between sort of glam rock flamboyance, androgyny, and the realities of sort of queer or gay identity. And I think... When that gets collapsed, it's it's a problem, and I think that the film Bohemian Rhapsody was trying is trying to collapse that. And I think Brian May even said like, "Oh, everyone thought like, oh, are you gay or not?" About even him, but it's like there's a difference when you actually are gay, and you actually have to deal with that, and you actually have to like figure that out for yourself. And I think to the the AIDS question, I think it's very interesting. There's an Alexander McQueen documentary that came out. Um, a couple of months ago that had the exact same issue where the straight makers were sort of saying like, oh, well, you know, we don't want to go there about like the sexuality and the drugs and the HIV diagnosis because it's so dark. And we just feel like why emphasize that? But it meant something to him. It meant something in his life. And you don't have to sort of, quote unquote, protect queer men from these complicated issues that mean something. There's a, you know, queer men and drugs. There are reasons for this. There, there are sort of ways to think about it, what, what impact it has on somebody's life from their perspective, rather than from the outside gaze looking in and sort of moralizing about it. So I think that we, yeah, it still has not been grappled with, these questions. And I think you see it in, in these films that don't know how to tell these stories in part because of who's telling them and continues to tell them. Pierre Dominguez is a culture writer for BuzzFeed News. Thank you, Pierre. Thank you for having me. And Rafer Guzman is a film critic for Newsday and The Takeaway. Thank you, Rafer. Thanks, Tanzina. That's our show for today. And here's something to take with you. Today is Latina Equal Pay Day. Women, on average, make about 80 cents to the dollar compared to white men. But Latinas make only 54 cents for every dollar that a white man earns. Latina Equal Pay Day lands on the 11th month of the year because Latinas have to work 11 extra months in order to make up for that difference. What about you? Have you experienced a pay discrepancy? And Latinas, I especially want to hear from you. Give us a tweet at The Takeaway or join the conversation on our Facebook page. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Tanzina Vega, and this is The Takeaway. Thanks for listening to Politics Brief. If you want more, go to wnyc.org slash election.